Are you a forgetful person? Do you find yourself often forgetting things, sometimes even very important things? Do you forget things that have serious consequences? For example, have you ever forgotten an exam? Back in my student days, I don't think I ever did, but I've had several, several nightmares about forgetting exams and just the thought of forgetting an exam, something like that, is just kind of nerve-wracking. Or what about work? Have you ever forgotten to go into work? I know for those of us who maybe work a nine-to-five, it's kind of hard to forget something like that, but I've known people who work irregular hours, and they've forgotten a shift or two, and that can have some pretty serious consequences. And speaking of serious consequences, I hope none of you guys forgot last week, Valentine's Day. You may be thinking, oh, my wife doesn't care about that kind of stuff. But you probably don't want to bank on that one. Your wife probably wants you to remember Valentine's Day and her birthday and your anniversary, even if she says it's not that big of a deal. A lot of people forget appointments, but that's not that big of a deal. You can always reschedule. What's worse is forgetting to pay bills. You forget to pay bills even once, you're stuck with a late fee. You you forget multiple times, and they can even shut your utilities off. Those late fees just pile up. The worst for me, though, was when I was in seminary. I was researching for my THM thesis, and when you're you're writing a master's thesis, they upgrade the number of books you can have checked out from the library at any one time from 8 to 50. And so, no joke, there's literally a time when I had 40-something books checked out. Just had a box of books or two, and I was very careful to note the due date, though, because they charge a late fee. It's a quarter per book per day, and with that many books, it's about ten ten bucks a day. So I had my books. The due date came, and I remembered. I remember. I wrote it down. I knew that was coming. I remembered the due date, and so I went online. I renewed all my books. No problem. Renewed them all for another three weeks. But I failed to write down my new due date because I was pretty sure, and I'd definitely turn them in before those next three weeks were up. Apparently not. I totally forgot about them. And thankfully, I remembered only about five days after they were due. But nonetheless, there I was at the library, cutting the library check for about 50 bucks, and they have no mercy there. There's no mercy whatsoever. And one last category here. How, how well do you remember names? An old John Hopkins survey found that names are by far the number one, thi- uh, number one th- thing people most often forget. Names. It's amazing how you can meet someone new, find out their name, but then just after you get to talk and you realize that you've already forgotten their name. Maybe it's because people are perhaps trying so hard to make a good first impression that they're not really even listening to the other person talk and they just forget the name. Anyway, it's pretty clear. We're a, we're forgetful people. We forget things. We're prone to forget. And I seriously wonder how excellent Adam and Eve's memory must have been before the fall. I mean, they must have been remembering things right and left. But now we've got problems. Sometimes it's not that big of a deal, but there are occasions when our forgetfulness can get us in trouble. When our forgetfulness can have serious results. Forget an anniversary, your wife gets upset. Forget to pay your bills, your utilities may turn off. Forget to go into work, you get fired. There's several things we just absolutely must remember in day-to-day life. We we just can't bear to forget these things, otherwise you're going to have trouble. 
And if you do have trouble remembering these important things, you need reminders. You need to set yourself reminders in your path to keep you on track. What happens, though, when we forget God? How much worse is it for us when we forget our Savior? And how great are those consequences? What blessings do we miss out on? Or what trouble do we run into when we forget God? As Christians, we know that we're prone to forget. Salvation, it's it's exciting, but life can be hard. And as life goes on, for some, their excitement dies down. And their fire turns into just smoldering embers. They get busy with life. They can start to forget what God has done for them. And it's not like they actually forget. It's just that they never call it to mind. They never actively dwell or think about what God has done for them in their day-to-day life. They don't spend any time dwelling on God's grace, and therefore they aren't being controlled by God's grace. When this happens, there are serious repercussions. King David, for instance, he failed to recall God's goodness and his faithfulness to him after all those years. He failed to remember that God was all-powerful, all-knowing, all-seeing. The days where David's life was being daily threatened by Saul were over. He was living a life of ease and luxury. And in that ease, he forgot God. And that led him to sin, murder, adultery. And then he had to deal with the repercussions of those sins. For one, the death of his child. Peter, likewise, failed to remember God. He was with Christ all those years. All those years. He, he witnessed all those miracles. He heard Jesus teach. He even confessed Jesus to be Lord and Savior. He knew Jesus, but when Christ was arrested, all this truth simply escaped his mind. He forgot. He forgot about him. And that led him to deny Christ three times, and he had to live with that guilt. From David to Peter to you and to me, every time we sin, it's because we fail to remember God. That's what's happening. It's because we fail to call to mind everything we know to be true and act upon it. We momentarily fall into this self-deception. And because of this, we need reminders. And we need them often. We need reminders to refresh our memories. To keep Christ at the front of our mind where he belongs. And not at the back of our mind. We need to always be confronted with the reality of God and his grace. And we need to act accordingly. So we need reminders. God knows that we need reminders. And so therefore he has included several reminders in his word. This morning as we come to Titus chapter 3 verses 3 through 7, we find some of those reminders. In Titus 3 we're confronted with several essential truths That must never be forgotten. Christians cannot bear to forget these realities, for doing so would bring the worst of consequences. And so as Paul spends this chapter urging Titus to remind the people of these things, I want to be faithful to this, and I want to carry forward these reminders. I want to remind us of these essential truths. Therefore, from Titus 3, verses 3 through 7, I want to give you three essential reminders that should change the way you live. Three essential reminders that should change the way we live. And 
This is important. It's, it's so important. We're going to split this up over two weeks. We're not going to cover all three reminders today. But, but nonetheless, pay close attention and, and take heed to what we reflect upon this morning. For these are things never to forget. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3. And the first reminder is this. From verse 3, remember who you were. Remember who you were. From verse 3. What does he say? Verse 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. Paul transitions into verse 3 with a critical reminder, and it's something we, we can't bear to forget. And what, what is it? What's the reminder? It's who you were. And it starts off with these key words, for we also once were. For we also once were. What's the first word in verse 3? It's for. And whenever you see the word for or therefore, it's marking a transition of some sort. And so what's the transition here? We'll look at verse 2. Paul just finished instructing believers to, verse 2, malign no one but to be peaceable, gentle, and showing every consideration for all men. And as we saw last week, these instructions, they all fall into, under the umbrella of the second greatest command to love your neighbor. God wants you to show genuine love and consideration and care for everyone, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. It doesn't matter. He wants you to be loving to all. But we asked this question last week. I mean, does that even include our enemies? Or what about God's enemies? Should we really be loving toward God's enemies? I mean, they hate God. They hate us. Why should we bother with them? Why why should we bother being loving toward them? And the answer to this question comes in verse 3. And these five words sum it all up. The first five words. For we also once were. That's the answer to that question. For we also once were. Point is that once upon a time, we also were just like them. Once upon a time, we also were the unbelievers. We also once hated God. We also once were his enemies. There was a time for all of us when we were no different. It doesn't matter if you even got saved at a, at a young age. By, defini- by definition, every believer was once an enemy of God, depraved and lost in their sins. But God still loved you and saved you. Isn't that what Romans 5.8 says? But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's a huge reminder. I mean, why bother loving unbelievers? People who even hate you. It's because we also once were just like them. So the reminder here is to remember who you were. That's his first reminder. Remember where you came from. Remember who you used to be. Remember what you got saved out of. As the years go by, you find yourself to have been a Christian for for some of you for even decades now. And your past life as an unbeliever can seem like a distant memory. And it's easy to forget who you once were. 
But if you're to live in right relation to God and in right relation to the lost, then you can't bear to forget this. You cannot bear to forget who you once were. And continuing on with verse 3, Paul doesn't stop there. It's not enough to simply just bring this reminder up and move on. He, He doesn't do that. And he wants to drive this point home, so he adds some more detail. And in particular, he lists seven aspects of your old self to help you remember just who you were. Seven aspects of your old self. And if you're to rightly remember who you were, where you came from, then you need to dwell on these seven aspects of your old self and remember them. And that's what we're going to do now. We're going to go through these one by one and remember these seven aspects of our old self, who we once were. Who were we? Well, let's, let's do this. Verse 3, what's the first one? You were foolish. That's the first aspect of your old self. You were foolish. It's not to say that we were once stupid or unintelligent or uneducated. There's a great multitude of highly intelligent unbelievers. That's not what it's saying. Rather, it's saying that we were once foolish. In the Bible, the fool is one who is without understanding. When it comes to spiritual things, the natural man is indeed foolish. Unbelievers, they can have brilliant minds when it comes to the things of this world. But when it comes to the most important thing, namely God, they are truly darkened in their understanding and foolish. Of course, to the world, though, we're the foolish ones. We're the fools. That's exactly the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. In fact, turn there now. If you're not familiar with this, you need to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is Paul's whole point there. And I want you to see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As you're turning, verse 18 says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. What he's saying is that to unbelievers, the gospel, it's stupid. And the fact that Jesus is God in the flesh and that he died on the cross and rose from the grave for the forgiveness of your sins, that the only way to salvation is by believing this, that's just dumb. To them, that's foolish. It's it's a fairy tale. It's an ancient myth. But, verse 18, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. We know that's no foolish message, but it's, it's God's truth. And pick up with me at verse 19. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. The point Paul is making here, and really in the rest of the chapter, is that the world with all of its wisdom, with all of its knowledge, still can't find God. They still can't find him. They still can't find salvation. The greatest philosophers, the greatest thinkers throughout all the ages, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, right on down the line, until today, guess what? They're still dead in their sins. 
They're still lost. And their knowledge can't save them. All the, the vast knowledge that they have doesn't do them any good. The only thing that can save them is belief in this simple message about Jesus. And God's plan here. He's so wise and it's just so humbling that the path of salvation, get this, the path of salvation, the meaning of life, the most important thing there is, it's simple enough for a child to grasp. It's simple enough for a child to understand. And that's amazing. You just have to be moronic enough to believe in Jesus. And I say that on purpose. The Greek word for foolishness here, that's a word we derive our word moron from. Moronic. And that's what it was. To the world, this, this message is just foolish. It's moronic. But if you're moronic enough, you can know the truth. That's what God does. He flips the wisdom of this world on its head. He just turns it upside down. And to the contrary, verse 25, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. I love that verse. In reality, the unbeliever is the one who is the fool for rejecting God. And jump down one more verse. Jump down to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Chapter 2, verse 14. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. watched a, a documentary the other day on the universe by Stephen Hawking. It's kind of fascinating. And Hawking pointed out that in our galaxy alone, Milky Way galaxy, there are some 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. That's what they ask me right now. 200 billion stars. That's insane. Can you imagine 200 billion stars, like our sun times 200 billion? 200 billion solar systems just out there. That, that is insane. But that's just, our, that's just our galaxy. How many galaxies are there? They estimate 1 trillion that's nuts. A trillion galaxies, each with hundreds of billions of stars. I mean, I can't even fathom that. But to me, that's not amazing. You know, what's really amazing is it's that in this documentary, right after they described the universe like this, in a very matter-of-fact way, they explained how life and the universe just sort of happened by accident. And it's just an accident. That's amazing. Psalm 14.1 The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's our first reminder. We need to remember first, our old selves. We were, we were just like that. We were once foolish also. That's the first aspect of our old selves we not want to bring to mind here. The second is this. You were disobedient. You were disobedient. And what a contrast here with verse 1 in Titus 3. Whereas Christians are reminded there to be submissive and obedient to all the authorities, we need to remember that at one time we were characterized by disobedience. Primarily this is in relation to God. There was a time when, when all of us rejected God's authority in our lives and we refused to submit to his will. And this is just like the false believers back in Titus chapter 1. Do you remember them? 
Titus chapter 1, verse 16. You can just flip the page back there. There were these false teachers and false believers in the island of Crete. What does he say about them? Verse 16, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Even people who call themselves Christians can still be in rebellion and disobedience to God and to his commands. You ever heard of the the so-called Christian who thinks he can just make up his own rules and that God will abide by his rules? Yeah, I don't really need to go to church. God and I, we've got an understanding. Or, you know, I don't really need to stop swearing. God understands my good intentions. I don't really need to do this or that. You know, God knows me. The list goes on. God does not want your excuses. God does not want your justifications. God wants your obedience. 1 Peter chapter 1, just listen, verse 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. That's your past life. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior. That's what we're to be like now. There's a story of a Wycliffe missionary named Arita, and she was doing the dishes when this boy named Jimmy, five-year-old neighbor, he was running up to the back porch to her house. She just finished painting the back porch handrails, though. The paint was wet. She was very proud of her work. But she yelled out, Jimmy, come around to the front door. There's wet paint on the porch rails. Jimmy replied, I'll be careful. And he just kept on going. Kept on going to the back porch. And so she said, no, Jimmy, don't come up the back. Because she knew Jimmy had a way of just always messing things up. And she said, come around the front. Jimmy again said, as he neared the steps, I'll be careful. And he kept on running. And frustrated, Arita shouted, Jimmy, stop. I don't want carefulness. I want obedience. Jimmy stopped just at the steps and went around to the front door. But how often were we like Jimmy? Or how often are we still like Jimmy when, where we want to do our own thing? We rationalize our actions. We say, God, God, I'll be careful. I'm going to do my own thing, but don't worry. I'll, I'll be careful. God does not want his children to be careful. He wants them to be obedient. Do you remember how Samuel rebuked King Saul because of this? Saul disobeyed God. He thought his own way was just fine. He could get by doing his own thing. And Samuel rebuked him and he said, 1 Samuel 15.22, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. I mean, the whole like sacrificial system, God just wants obedience. He wants you to obey. That's a good reminder for all believers to remember that God wants obedience. And it's also good for us to remember that before, before our salvation, that's all we could do was disobey. We were characterized by disobedience. That's just how we lived. 
Some unbelievers today, though, they still they don't think they're this way. They don't think they're disobedient. They think they're good people, that they keep God's commandments, that they're fairly obedient. This just leads, though, to the third aspect of our old selves. You were deceived. The third aspect of our old selves. You were deceived. The third thing mentioned here in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. All unbelievers, including our old selves, fall under this category. You were deceived. This refers to one who is led astray or made to wander from the truth. And just as Satan is the first and greatest deceiver, the goal of his entire rebellion is to lead people astray. And Satan desperately wants to trick people into thinking that the broad path doesn't lead to destruction. Leads to happiness, leads to satisfaction. And his greatest victory is when people honestly believe they don't need a savior, that they're doing just fine on their own. I shared the gospel with this lady not too long ago. She was a stranger, but we got to talking and asked her if she believed in heaven and hell. She said yes. I said, Oh, well, do you think you would go to heaven when you die? And with confidence, she said yes. So I asked her, Why? Why do you think you would go to heaven when you die? And again, she replied with confidence. She said, because I'm a good person and I'm a good parent. And she meant it. She, she meant it. She was so utterly convinced of her goodness. And she actually believed that it was good enough. That her goodness was good enough before God. And what need of a savior did she have? She was doing just fine. She, she was good enough. She didn't need a savior. I then proceeded to shock her when I said, what if I told you there's no good people in heaven? There's not a single good person in heaven. None. There's none there. Heaven is only full of extremely wicked and vile people. However, these people realize their wickedness. They realized there was nothing they could do to stop their just judgment. They realized their goodness wasn't good enough. And so they cried out to God for mercy. By turning away from their wickedness and repentance, turning toward Christ and faith, these wicked people received God's forgiveness and were saved. Those are the only people in heaven. Don't be deceived. And many Christians even still are. And don't forget your past deception. We don't always need Satan to deceive us or to lead us astray. We do just fine on our own. We are perfectly capable of deceiving ourselves and leading ourselves astray. We easily lead ourselves astray into believing that the things of this world can truly satisfy. And we easily trick ourselves into thinking that a life lived apart from God is a better life. We deceive ourselves plenty. But thank God, you who know him, that he's opened your eyes. And don't forget the time when you were likewise deceived. Don't forget, thirdly now, that you were once deceived. Fourth on our list, the fourth aspect of your old self, you were enslaved. A fourth thing mentioned here in Titus 3.3, you were enslaved. This describes the continuous and hopeless nature of, of the unbeliever in sin. The unbeliever has neither the desire nor the ability to be anything but sinful. 
This doesn't mean the unbelievers sin every second of every day. Rather, they're always in a state of sin. And they're always enslaved to it. Sin is their master. They have no other alternative apart from Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says now in Romans 6. This is another key passage you just have to know. So turn there with me. Romans chapter 6. We'll read verses 5 through 7. Romans 6, 5 through 7. He says, For if we have become united with him, Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So speaking of believers here and how at salvation we're freed from our slavery to sin. We've taken our old self, we've been crucified with Christ, and we're free. We're no longer bound to sin. We no longer have to sin. But on the flip side, what does that mean? It means for the unbeliever who hasn't crucified his old self with Christ, he's still bound. He's still shackled, enslaved to sin. Sin is his master, and he follows his master's wishes. Titus 3.3 goes on to say that we were once specifically enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. He's referred to the sinful desires or satisfactions we have in life. This word for pleasures in the Greek, it's the word we get the word hedonism from. Hedonism is that insatiable pursuit of self-satisfaction. You just want to consume and satisfy your flesh. And this is what the unbeliever lives for. This is what they want to capture in life. But what, they, what they don't realize is that their lusts and their pleasures have already captured them. Don't forget, we just read a while ago, 1 Peter 1.14. Don't forget this. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. Don't be like that way anymore. Believers now are to be enslaved to God and not to sin. A while ago, I read an article about the son of Sam serial killer from the 70s. You heard that, heard that guy? You remember him from back then? Uh, he shot about 13 women, and he's serving a life sentence now, but since 2002, he's been up for parole every two years. But every time, he has refused parole, and he's requested to stay in prison. Now that sounds kind of strange. You'd think they'd be like jumping at a chance to get out of there, but he wants to stay in. He said this in a statement. This is a quote. He said, I have no interest in parole and no plans to seek release. If you could understand this, I'm already a free man. I'm not saying this jokingly. I really am. Jesus Christ has already pardoned me, and I believe this. End quote. Now, I'm sure 
People think he's, he's just making that up. He's lying. He's trying to manipulate people. But we don't know. But we do know this. God's grace is sufficient to cleanse any sin, even something as terrible as murder. And so here's a man, an ex-serial killer. He's in prison for life. He's behind bars for the rest of his life, but he knows he's free. And yet, how many countless people live outside those prison walls but are enslaved? They're slaves. You need to remember that you were once just like that. You were enslaved to your sin. You were without hope, and you were without God in the world. You can't forget that. You can't forget where you've come from. Next two aspects of ourselves go together. We're going to do the next two back-to-back. Number five and number six of these seven aspects of our old self. Number five, you are malicious. And number six, you are envious. From Back to Titus chapter three. You are malicious and you are envious. Verse three in Titus, it says, we were spending our life in malice and envy. That's just how we live. That's how we spent our days, in malice and envy. First, malice. This word for malice, it's often just translated as wickedness or evil. It refers to you know, being spiteful or holding ill will towards someone else. Malice is when you delight in the harm or misfortune of another person. Or when you want to cause the harm or misfortune of another person. And you want to see other people suffer. And malice, it goes hand in hand with, with anger and bitterness and wrath. For example, I'll read for you Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. It says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. But, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Malicious person hates that. They, they hate forgiving other people. It just makes their blood boil to have to forgive someone else. They want to hold on to it. They hold a grudge and they simmer in their bitterness. Malice is also often coupled with envy in Scripture like it is here in Titus 3.3. 3. Malice, envy, they just, they just seem to go together. And whereas malice is hating people because you look down on them, envy is hating people because you look up to them. Or malice is hating people for what they do. Envy is hating people for what they have. Envy now can be defined as evil intent toward those who have something that you want. The original Hebrew word for envy referred to a burning in the Hebrew. And envy, it's a good picture. It's a burning anger, a burning bitterness towards someone you esteem for some reason. Envy, it's related to jealousy, but they're not quite the same, envy and jealousy. Jealousy makes us fear to lose what we possess, whereas envy creates sorrow that others have something we don't. And envy, it's a sin that by definition can never find satisfaction. Envy can never be satisfied. It only breeds disappointment and frustration. And as you continually tear down people around you who have more than you, other people are going to take their place. There's always going to be someone else who has more than you or who is above you in life. 
Like I mentioned, I've been reading through First Second Samuel recently, and here we go, another King Saul illustration. He's just the perfect illustration for Titus 3.3, and especially here, this malice and this envy. Here was Saul. He was the first king of Israel, and he wanted all the glory that came with being the first king of Israel. He wanted the glory, but then here's this young guy, David. He's stealing all his glory. I mean, David killed Goliath. David defeated the Philistines. David won every battle. And Saul couldn't stand this. So listen to this. 1 Samuel 18, verses 6 through 9. I'll just read them. You don't have to turn there. They finished the battle. Verse 6. It happened as they were returning home when David returned from killing the Philistine that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the battle is over. They're coming home. It's like the procession home. David's there. Saul's there. The king is leading the way. And the people, they just come out of the cities, and they're just singing in in celebration of the king and his victory. But what do they sing? Verse 7. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Verse 8, Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They've ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they've only ascribed thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? Verse 9, Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Now it's the turning point. And really from that day on, Saul tried to kill David. He made it his goal to just harm David, to see his downfall, to tear him down. He couldn't stand it. He couldn't stand it that another person was stealing his fame and his glory. On the one hand, he envied David for his victory and his his power in battle, but that just led him toward malice to David, just hating him and being consumed with that. You put this together, Saul's malice towards David, his envy of David, and they just bred one thing, hatred. And that's our last aspect of our old selves in Titus 3.3, the seventh aspect of our old selves. You were hateful. You were hateful. The end of Titus 3 reads, we were spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. And that's it. That's the culmination of all this, hatred. All of our malice, all of our envy toward other people, it came to a head in hatred. We just hate them. We just hate other people. In fact, this is why the ruling Jews hated Jesus. This is why they crucified him. You ever, you ever think about that? You know, why, why did they hate him so much? Why would they just not let it go? Why were they so driven to kill him? Matthew 27:18 gives the answer. There it says, Pilate realized that the Jews handed him over because of envy. That's what Matthew 27:18 says. They wanted his power, his fame, his prestige, his glory. They wanted it, but they couldn't have it. So they hated him and they sought to kill him. The end of verse 3, Paul says two things actually. First, he says we were hateful. This means we were just detestable. We were hateful people. We were just offensive and repulsive. Not necessarily on the outside, but at least on the inside. And then second, he says, we were hating one another. 
So all the, all the hatred we were harboring on the inside, all that bitterness and malice and envy that were just stirring up on the inside, it just sooner or later finds expression on the outside, and we just hate other people. We're hateful, and we hate other people. That's how we were. And overall, notice this from Titus 3.3. Notice how three-dimensional our depravity was before salvation. Look at verse 3. You know, in relation to God, we were foolish, disobedient, and deceived. In relation to ourselves, we were enslaved to various lusts and passions. And then in relation to others, we were filled with malice, envy, and hate. Every dimension possible, God, others, ourselves, we were, as all unbelievers are, lost. We were just lost. I want you to stop now for a moment and think back. Think back to how you once were. Make this personal now. Take everything we've studied this morning, make it real, make it personal for you. Think back to your past. Do you really remember the time when all this was true of you? It's important that you do this. Even if you considered yourself to be relatively good as an unbeliever, do you realize how truly lost you were? God includes in his word several essential reminders for that for us, and we cannot bear to forget them. And one of those essential reminders that we've looked at from Titus 3.3 this morning is to remember who you were. And it's so important that you do this. You stop periodically and you reflect on this to recall just how lost you were. And like verse 3, this was true of all of us. We all were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, and hateful. But it can help you. Stopping to remember this can help you and help your Christian walk in the here and now. How? How can this help you? How can remembering this have an impact on your life now? I want to suggest to you three ways, three you call them applications of remembering this first reminder of who you once were. Let me give you three ways that this can help you. Number one, remembering who you were should motivate compassion for the lost. Remembering who you were should motivate compassion for the lost. Some Christians, they're so angry with the world. They see our society around us degrading and it upsets them. They hate the world. That's not necessarily wrong to hate the world system, but what's not okay is when that frustration with the world turns into hatred for unbelievers themselves. This is something you struggle with. Just think about all those people in the world that just upset you, that you find yourself actually hating. Your unsaved coworker who just flaunts his immorality. Your unsaved family member who hates God and ridicules you for your faith. That unsaved politician who you think is just destroying America. Whoever it is, think about them. And now remember. You were once no different. You were once just like them. Yeah, maybe you weren't as wicked as possible, but you were just as lost. Think about all the people in the world, and do you see how lost they are? They're deceived. They're blinded. They're enslaved to their sin, just like you were. 
And what do you really expect of them? Do you expect them as unbelievers to live godly and righteous lives? No. They're trapped in their sin, and seeing them like that, which is how you once were, should evoke a real pity and just a compassion in your heart. That should be your response. Having compassion on the lost doesn't mean you condone their wickedness. No. But it does mean you refuse to hate them for it. Seeing that the only difference between you and them is one thing, and one thing only, the grace of God, it should change how you view them. Being a sinner yourself, you're not the eternal judge over other sinners. You're not qualified. Leave that to God. God simply wants you to reflect Christ's same love and compassion on the lost. Sheep without a shepherd, they're lost in their sins, just like you were. So remembering that should drive you to compassion for the lost. That's the first application here. Remembering who you were should motivate compassion for the lost. And then secondly now, remembering who you were should motivate evangelism to the lost. Remembering who you were should motivate evangelism to the lost. Get this, if you never evangelize, if you never share the gospel with others, if you never witness your faith, plain and simple, you don't care about the lost. That's why. There's just only one reason when you actually search your heart. You don't have compassion for the lost. For otherwise, you would share the good news with them, which is their only means of escape if you really care. Does it make you happy that the lost are perishing and going to hell? I hope not. But if you fail to share the gospel with them, that's how you're acting. Every opportunity you let slip by, you're essentially saying, you can go to hell. I'm okay with that. Uh, you know, I'd rather not share with you for what, you know, maybe I'm scared or whatever. I'm okay with you just, you know, you can go to hell. That's what you're saying, essentially, when you just let the opportunity slip by for whatever excuse you justify in your mind. Think about your past. What if someone didn't share the gospel with you? What if someone didn't have compassion on you to lead you to the Lord? It's a simple truth. The more you remember how helplessly lost you once were, the more you're going to want to help those who are still lost. They're still like that. They're still blind. They're still enslaved. They're still deceived. They need someone. How are they going to believe without a preacher, with someone to just go and share with them? And sure, it can be hard. It can be scary. It can be frightful to share the gospel, but this compassion for them should overcome that, and this love for them should drive you to, over your dead body, share the gospel with them. Let me give you one last application here. Remembering who you were should motivate thankfulness to God. Remembering who you were should motivate thankfulness to God. And I'm talking about serious thankfulness, just incredibly thankful to the Lord. Why? Why why would that be? It's because you're not that way anymore. You remember who you once were. Well, hey, you're not that way anymore. So that should make you thankful that you're not that way anymore. Because ultimately, God had compassion on you. God loved you. God saved you, and he made you different. That should make you thankful. 
if this extreme thankfulness does not change your life, if you find yourself you just don't have it and your life doesn't show it, then you need to call into question whether or not your eyes have actually been opened. We've got a couple more reminders here. We're going to save them for next week. But just reflect on this one alone, who you once were. Remember where you've come from, where you've been, what God saved you out of, and let that change you. Let it move you to a compassion for the lost, to an evangelism to the lost, and to just a great thankfulness to God for what he's done for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you so much for this time of remembrance. We need this. We need to stop in our busy lives every now and then and just remember who we were, first off, where we've come from, what we've been saved out of. What we do, we reflect on this, we, we see where we've been, and we were so lost and deceived ourselves. And we know that now, but we thank you. Thank you so much for taking pity on us, having compassion on us. You were just to judge us. You would have been just to do nothing and let us go to hell, but you didn't. You saved us, you loved us, and Lord, we are so thankful for that. May that thought just transform our lives and and draw us to you evermore. And Lord, as we leave here reflecting on this first remembrance, who we once were, Lord, help it to really drive us to a serious compassion for the lost and therefore evangelism to the lost. Lord, we we know we need to do that. It's only going to come from a true heart change, and that heart change is going to come through reflecting on how we were once no different. Let this not escape our minds. Let it not be pushed to the back of our minds or escape our thought, Lord. Help us to always remember where we've been and humility just living in light of that and living accordingly. In your name we pray. Amen.